Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This is the final episode for this public podcast feed and also for the Sight and Sound miniseries that I used for this final season. So we've been covering uh, the highest ranked films that I had never covered before for my site in any capacity. Uh, we started with Jean Dielman, went through Beau Tavai, then Close Up. Uh, last entry was Sunrise, and this one is Stalker a film I've known for a long time, considered one of my favorites, but am only getting to discuss in depth for the first time now. And uh, from this point on, uh, my f- any podcasts or uh, writing that I do on film, as opposed to Twin Peaks, uh, which is going to continue to be public, but any film writing or podcast will be on patreon.com slash lost in the movies as patron rewards. It's a transition I'm making to help me focus on other things. So uh, this is a good note to go out on just before midnight, basically, when I wanted to get this done. Uh, uh, just before we start the episode itself, I wanted to briefly cover the uh, sort of sight and sound history of this film, where it has been on this list uh, in past incarnations, both the critics and the director's list. Um, I do also want to mention, uh, before we even get to that, just what I, what else I've been up to um, on my site. I have a status update announcement called Final Days of Film Writing and Podcast, which discusses um, what I just mentioned, what my plans were for this uh, weekend, early week. And then a conversation with Sam Giuliano on uh, YouTube. Uh, he's from the site Wonders in the Dark and wrote two recent books. So we have a chat about that, about Oscar predictions, films in general, and all that kind of stuff. And then I also... Uh, have a review of 63 Up, which will be going up on my site around the same time as this. And uh, on patreon.com slash lost in the movies, I have uh, for the $5 a month tier, a couple episode reviews I wrote years ago and then never published because I didn't do the viewing diaries, but I thought that would be a nice fun reward for the end of October. Uh, Star Trek uh, early episode and the Clone Wars early episode. So reviews of both of those. And then also the big one for the dollar a month tier, finally releasing episode 100 finale with 12 films in focus. Um, Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, Tony Erdman, The Turin Horse, Amore, Moonrise, The Act of Killing, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Fablemans, The Master, uh, a conversation about The Lighthouse with Riley McDonald and a uh, comparison of the Tree of Life to Twin Peaks, part of my Twin Peaks cinema series, and then also uh, the Florida Project. So all of those films discussed in that one episode. It's like six or seven hours long. So definitely check that out. That'll be on Patreon around the same time that you're hearing this. So uh, you you can explore all that. Uh, Oh, and also on YouTube, I have a quick announcement about Journey Through Twin Peaks, talking about the long-delayed videos and what's in store. Uh, Very briefly, I'll have a longer one uh, in the future. But those are my uh, final updates for this podcast feed of other work I've been up to. And uh, as far as Stalker goes, so obviously this film came out in 1979, so it wasn't eligible for the earliest uh, sight and sound list from 52 to 72. But... Uh, in 82, the first year it could have been on either list, um, it was in a 50-way tie for number 81, which just basically means it got three votes because there weren't that many critics voting at the time. In 92, it was in a nine-way tie for number 30 on the critics list, which means it got six votes, so it doubled its vote count for whatever that's worth, that small amount. In 2002, 
It was an 81-way tie for the director's number 101. This was the first time it popped up on the director's list. Uh, that was because two directors voted for it, and only one critic voted for it, which placed it all the way back at number 228, a 413-way tie. So uh, 413 different... Um, or, or, or 412 films were ranked higher that year. So that was kind of a low point. I don't know why 2002... It received even less attention than it had earlier decades, but that was soon rectified. In 2012, it was in a tie for number 29 on the critics list with 39 critics voting for it and 14 directors voted for it, putting it in a seven-way tie for number 30. So yeah, 2002, just a real outlier there. And then 2022, the reason it's here, uh, it tied for number 43 on the critics list 51 critics voted for it, so it wouldn't really be one of these five films if not for the director's list. They elevated it way up to number 14. It was in a four-way tie for that That number. 28 different directors voted for it. So there you go. Those are the nuts and bolts of uh, why we're talking about Stalker in this context of the Sight and Sound miniseries. But more importantly, uh, here's why we're talking about it just as a film worth discussing that I was... Uh, happy to finally be able to cover. So let's begin that discussion here. Зона это очень сложная система ловушек, что ли. Но стоит тут появиться людям, как все здесь приходит в движение. Ваше самое заветное желание. Самое выстроенное. One of the most fascinating things about Stalker is that this is a film, it's a high concept film, really, about these kind of grand uh, sci-fi ideas. It has uh, great, vast, spiritual, metaphysical concerns, philosophical ideas that it's playing with. There's a sense of endless possibility to its very premise, and yet so much of it uh, is about withholding. So much of its power comes from that withholding. From, for example, the fact that, to talk about the end of the film right at the outset, that the characters don't actually go into the room that they spend the whole film trying to reach. Or the fact that the style of the film, you know, it's not this uh, lavish, ornate uh, world building in terms of like the sets and stuff. It's it's this richly, beautifully, uh, kind of disturbingly textured uh, landscape, but using uh, places that already existed. It's it's you know this is this is a film of discovery in a way more than it is of I don't want to say of creation because there's obviously a lot of creativity in it but of construction you know it's it's not a film in which they're designing this world they're kind of fashioning it out of pieces of reality that already exist and are fascinating so uh there's just a sense in which you know this this film is very restrained for something so uh, so rich and so deep. And uh, on the other hand, too, I you know, if you look at it through the other lens, 
uh, not as a genre piece, but as, you know, an art film, if you want to be reductive in the other direction. Uh, it's kind of fascinating, actually, how much of it consists of uh, exposition, in a way, of, um, you know, exploring these concepts, these kind of uh, possibilities of the the zone, the world of this film, in a way that is almost kind of on the nose. Like there's very oblique, diffuse elements of the film and then some very, very direct ones as well. And there's a fascinating tension there. So I first saw this film many years ago and I believe that's the only time I, I saw it. And uh, it kind of came up fleetingly at different points in my sight when I picked Andrei Tarkovsky as one of my favorite directors this uh, a clip from this film specifically the ending where uh, the girl is moving the glasses uh, was the clip that I used uh, just looking for on YouTube for something I thought oh yeah that that sequence was so amazing I put that in there and things like that but uh, it didn't make my favorites list for whatever reason when I made that in 2011 and so it was something I'd never written about I'd never recorded a podcast about video essay so perfect candidate here for this sight and sound coverage using that as a springboard and watching it again was interesting because um, well for a couple of reasons there was kind of a meta aspect to it as well which I'll get to but also just kind of being somewhat tired as I was watching it and at times having to stop and go back a little which I tried not to do for the most part because I wanted to stick with the flow of the movie but there were points where I kind of blinked out for a minute and missed a line of dialogue or something that I thought might be important. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching it that way and uh, struggling at times with the film and remembering, okay, when I first saw this, did I, but then as, as I'm watching it, I can sort of remember having a similar trajectory where it's like, there's parts where I feel kind of completely mystified by it. And then it circles around and suddenly it, I, I, it feels very straightforward in a way, sort of like I was talking about with that combination of very like direct inquiries and storytelling and much more kind of impressionistic, uh, elusive uh, modes of conveying experience, I would say, rather than information. For some background on this film, uh, it's based on story called Roadside Picnic, which takes its title from the idea that some aliens just kind of dropped by Earth at some point and uh, then left, and it was nothing for them, but it completely changed our society, our existence, our consciousness on a deep fundamental level because of the kind of psychic aura that they left behind uh, just by their presence. So, uh, so I say psychic, but I think it's a, it's a physical effect, but it kind of operates on a level that uh, humans aren't really familiar with, and just kind of fucks with their heads, to put it <laughs> to put it bluntly. And in the film, there are, or sorry, in the story, there are figures like guides who lead people into this area that the aliens have contaminated. Um, again, like as if they were just on a picnic and threw some trash out to the side, and that trash is like you know massive repercussions for the local ecosystem. 
uh, especially on like a small scale for the smaller animals and stuff. And, and we're the smaller animals in this scenario, but there are, seem to be benefits to it as well. One of which is if you go into this area again, called the zone that is created by this uh, presence, you know, in the film, they talk about meteorites as well, I think even more than aliens. And we never see anything that would be necessarily extraterrestrial it really exists more as a conceit to set up kind of these the sensation of um the altered consciousness and and also the intellectual ideas of what uh you know what your innermost desires are and what you you know what, what this sort of the, the dynamics between the characters are and all of that um, so anyways, that what they're seeking is this room where once you enter it, your innermost desires are fulfilled. And uh, there's an example of this in the past where a character named Porcupine, who is the one who trained the central guide in the film, who's just known as Stalker, uh, Porcupine went there with his brother. Uh, his brother ended up dying, and then he went to the uh, the room and... He became uh, Porcupine, you know, because he survived. His brother did not. Porcupine went to the room, got his innermost desires granted. He got all this wealth, and then he killed himself soon after. And this is a question they keep exploring in the film, keep coming back to, and there's a kind of revelation about it near the end, which implies a, a couple things. I took one thing from it, which I'm not sure was necessarily intended, but I, which I kind of like. But um, what they explicitly note is, you know, the, the room doesn't just answer your prayers. It gives you what you subconsciously want. Uh, it, it responds more to your actual desires than to, you know, what you think you should have or what you uh, kind of conceptually want to give the world or something. It says, no, in intuitively, here's what you want. You're getting this. You know, it's like a, it's like a genie in a bottle that uh, you don't articulate your wishes to. The genie just knows and gives them to you, for better or worse. And uh, so there's the sense in which really he was a greedy, selfish person. And even though he thought he wanted to, you know, rescue his brother, by the time he got to the room, he would have said, "Please give me my brother back." And instead, they just give him a bunch of money, they or it or whatever. Um, but I also had the thought maybe he wanted, he was jealous of his brother, he wanted his brother to die, and that that was granted along the way. Now, I don't think that's the case because uh, the movie eventually makes it clear you don't get your wishes granted until you get all the way to the room. Like, just being in the zone isn't enough. You have to get to that final destination. And uh, as I noted, the characters, none of the characters actually go into the room. One of them stumbles right on the brink and is pulled back but says he doesn't want to because uh, he's really not that good of a person. Um, and he, he doesn't believe that, you know, conscience really exists, that uh, if he goes in there, something bad will happen, as it seems to happen for most of the people who are led into the room, because the room knows you better than you know yourself, basically. And the other guy actually already has kind of come to the zone knowing this or thinking this, and his plan was to uh, throw a bomb into there, destroy it, so that uh, he could, uh, you know, prevent future people from going in and screwing things up. Or if somebody gets it, goes some megalomaniac, you know, really dangerous person goes in there and becomes a threat to the world and so forth. 
and then uh, the stalker is forbidden to go in. It's it's part of the duties of how he was trained, and he's he's a real true believer in this kind of approach. Now that said, there's a fascinating dynamic at work uh, there as well with this particular character his relationship to the others. In the beginning of the film, you know, we first see him with his wife and his daughter, and he seems very stoic. The wife is getting kind of hysterical about him going back to the zone and how dangerous it is, and she breaks down, and he just kind of moves on. Like, this is his job. This is what he's going to do. He meets the guys at a bar, takes them on this wild chase. Like, it's funny to think this movie actually has kind of a rip-roaring action sequence in a way, but it, it kind of does. Um, you know, in an unconventional Tarkovskyan way. But that facade starts to fall apart as the film goes along, and this character begins to seem a little more desperate, a little out of control, kind of pathetic, not really... I shouldn't say out of control. Um, he doesn't have good control over the two men who are who are following him into the zone. So, you know, we see him get freaked out when they won't do certain things the way he says they should be done. They're kind of stubborn. They ignore him. And then the consequences he predicts don't seem to happen. And he just says, oh, this must be because you are good people. I trust you. And it's, it's like he keeps kind of um, swinging back and forth between, like, you know, try, trying to make it seem as if he's in control of this situation as much as anyone can be and they should trust him. But by the time they get to the room he's just basically reduced to the role of watching them make the decisions they're going to make and uh, not really being able to do, uh, you know, to, to play any sort of role as a leader, as a guide at this point. So he's really broken down throughout the course of this movie in a way that I hadn't remembered. But as I watched it, I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that's right. Like, this was my impression of the film the first time I saw it, that this character who seems so sure of himself and in control is kind of exposed throughout. Now, again, though, I don't think it's in the sense that he's necessarily dishonest, but he does not really have the strength that we initially think he would. And his final uh, statements about the other two men are, are also interesting to me because he complains about their lack of faith, about how they're just these intellectual snobs who are lifeless and lack a, a, you know, a sense of wonder and hope that he would that he would think anybody coming to the zone into that room should have that this this should be like a pursuit of something beautiful and of possibilities but again i mean the evidence kind of speaks for itself that so many of the people who have come there uh, i think one of the characters even suggests all of them that this has happened with don't really get what they wanted so it's like is he being kind of uh, ridiculously naive to to keep doing this, to keep bringing people there, in the uh, you know under the notion that something beautiful will happen. There's there's kind of a destructive quality to it. It actually makes me think to a certain extent of uh, you know contemporary politics, and I think there's a lot of bad faith actors on the right, but there also seem to be some. Um, and, and on the left as well, in a different way, in a sort of utopian way, I guess, but in circumstances where people kind of decide this is what human nature is, this is what I kind of want society to look like and be, so I'm just going to ignore evidence to the contrary that it's not going to work that way and just sort of plow ahead. And it feels like that's what this character is doing to a certain extent. 
Um, and I, I do wonder, you know, uh, Tarkovsky was very frustrated with the Soviet Union. He left there after this film. And uh, this this uh, this film has been interpreted in light of that and interpreted in light of dreams he was having where he was leaving prison but then wanted to go back. So this kind of tension there. And I wonder to what extent this character could be seen as a kind of a true believer in a system that isn't working um, in the, you know, in the context of the USSR. Um, and I wonder about that because I, I don't know a ton about Tarkovsky's um, interpretation of what the USSR was and, and all of that, because I think there's generally a sense that he and other dissidents of the time viewed it as a completely corrupt, cynical system, that there wasn't really even a kernel of good faith or good intentions gone astray, uh, that it was kind of corrupt at the root, whereas a character like the stalker would suggest, you know, to the extent that's allegorical, that no, there, there is, it, the good intentions are the problem. The making of the film was extremely fraught. Uh, they were shooting in extremely toxic locations. Many of the uh, participants in the film, including Tarkovsky himself, died of illnesses, in his case, cancer, within like a decade or two of, of making this movie, and many felt that it was connected to the production. The film took many years to make and was incredibly shot three times, meaning the entire film was shot. That footage was uh, unusable, or at least Tarkovsky thought so, because of, of laboratory errors. He fired the cinematographer, went back, shot it again, and was much less satisfied with that version, and then shot it, apparently, a third time, all of the sequences. And this is already, as I said, a difficult shoot. Just the the um, complications of it are kind of astounding to consider. All of that is part of the film's legend, but ultimately what has really uh, sustained it, and I would say actually... Um, increased its stature over time in uh you know it's among cinephiles among critics among film goers it is really what's on screen the experience of watching it and also i think maybe even more so than that sort of esoteric appeal of the images the flow of imagery that's that's kind of the glue that holds the the uh the viewers to the screen but but what keeps people kind of coming back to it and talking about it may be in a way, the ideas surrounding it and the kind of abstraction of that and people's fascination with that. Like this idea of the zone, uh, I, I think, has come into like increasing currency in various, you know, cultural artifacts, certainly in political discussions. Um, after Trump was elected, Chapo Trap House did an, an interview with uh, Adam Curtis, the, the, the uh, documentarian, and he used this as a touchstone. I feel like since then, in various contexts, I've, I've seen it more and more. I've seen it pop up on podcasts that aren't necessarily about film, but people just want to discuss it. Like, it has a following, I think, beyond what you might expect of, like, hardcore cinephiles. It seems to have um, it kind of touched a, or or somehow resonated with a larger cultural zeitgeist something about this idea of being in a place that doesn't quite make sense that feels off that you feel kind of lost in and you're you're almost being toyed with in a way by this reality 
there's that sense of like the the terrain that they're on being an active presence and character. Although again, at times, what's intriguing is, I mean, there were almost moments where I was like, is is the stalker like faking it? Is he just telling them all of these myths about this this place? and letting that play out in their minds and kind of create it. And in a way, that's that that actually is true, even if you accept, which I think eventually you have to, given some of the visual evidence of things that are inside of this place that suggest, oh no, that it does really have this, this power and this danger to it. Um, there's a whole sequence I didn't even mention where they're just walking through a tunnel with sort of, uh, I guess, stalactites or stalagmites, whichever one's hang from the ceiling, hanging down, and they go on and on and on through this tunnel. They call it the meat grinder. And uh, it's supposedly this really dangerous place, but the guy gets through on the other side, and it's like, well, to what extent was it actually dangerous? Or are, you know, <laughs> are, are the people who kind of create this lore just fucking with people's heads as they go into it? And then that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy as well, which is something I find fascinating about the film, the idea that you go into this space and you are like co-author of the things that happen there. It's not just a force working upon you. And it's very Black Lodge in that sense. I mean, I think it's certainly interesting to me that the new Twin Peaks, the return, uh, you know, relatively new, this seven years ago, but that it had, uh, it, it referred to some of its sort of spiritual locations as the zone, which, uh, you know, sort of feels like a Tarkovsky nod, whether it was intended to be or not. Um, but either way, like that just, the, 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 there's something that really resonates between the works in that sense, where you're going into this kind of dream space and finding out something about yourself just as much as about whatever beings or force established this place. There's a commingling that happens there. Um, also similar to a, in that sense, to a much more, a much messier film than this one uh, that I saw recently, Communion, about Christopher Walken as uh, Whitley Stryber, the the guy who wrote that book in the '80s about his uh, encounters with extra-dimensional beings or whatever. And uh, you know, again, in there, that's this idea: you go out, wander into the wilderness, into this space, and you kind of find this other realm within that. And uh, Stalker, in some ways, is like the archetypal, archetypal and uh, sort of most purely elevated version of that. Um, although, again, I, I do find it interesting that the film isn't pure in some ways, that it, it does kind of mix these different modes and allow itself to openly kind of head-on tackle these ideas in certain parts, and then in other parts just really immerse you in a sensation um, and that's the part that I think I remembered the most from my first viewing and that I struggled with more this time. Uh, again, partly because of the context I was watching it in, which was I wanted to finish it this evening. I wanted to record this. This is one of the last pieces of film commentary that I'm offering up uh, publicly on my site. And I wanted it up before my birthday. So there's this whole routine where I was kind of forcing myself into... Um, of a, a viewing in a way that's probably not the best to view a film that's as immersive an experience as this. Uh, and, and in a weird way, in a perverse way though, that kind of resonated with the film itself where these characters are going into this place with mixed motives and uh, you know, part of a larger context that maybe don't allow them to experience what they're going to experience. So actually in, in a weird way, I kind of appreciated the fact that, I was, uh, you know, en entering it with that mind frame. 
But I do remember from the first time I watched it just really clicking with the kind of poetic, long, immersive passages where you're just watching the landscape, uh, these incredible close-ups of water. Everything is very waterlogged in this film. It's like a, I mean, it's a film I think that also resonates with the, you know, fears of a climate apocalypse as well, just because of the way that this landscape looks. And uh, there's these incredible close-ups with voiceover, abstract thoughts being sort of articulated. And in these passages, we get the sense that it's not like a hard intellectual, analytical, philosophical film in that like cerebral sense, but that it's more, it's like about manifesting these, you know, the, the, the meat of these ideas, the real like experience, the phenomenology, I guess you would call it, of experiencing these emotional states and doing that through the visuals and very much through the sound. I mean, this is an incredible sounding film. Uh, the music is sort of a mix of instruments. They've, uh, Tarkovsky talked about how he wanted it to be East meeting West, but not actually quite uh, you know, being able to fit together. Um, so he used... A, uh, for, for like a Western instrument, he used uh, the flute. And then the Eastern one was called tar, an Iranian uh, string instrument, and also a, a lot of synthesizer in there as well. But it creates this very ethereal texture that then blends with some of the sounds, the sound of a train, the sound of uh, this, this wagon, trolley thing that they're riding out to the zone. And uh, there's just a gorgeous kind of elemental but very uh kind of um what's the word i'm looking for disorienting um sense to it um i don't even know if disorienting is exactly right it's um it's it's it it gives you a bit of an out of body experience but in a way that you could argue actually is kind of orienting you to some deeper fundamental uh, meaning or a kind of state of being. So the film is very mystical in that way, but then there's also stuff like them <laughs> getting to like the outer reaches of this area, or I guess the most inner reaches of this area, past the meat grinder, past all these rooms full of sand and water and objects floating on this strange tile floor, this just ab abandoned like industrial wasteland in the wilderness, this kind of mixture of man and nature. And they get all the way out there and there's a phone that starts ringing. <laughs> they pick up the phone and he has this very like Kafkaesque conversation with someone on the other line. And, uh, it's, you know, the, the, the professor character call him the, the one who builds the bomb. The other one they refer to as the writer because he's a, uh, he, a fiction writer, I think. And so, um, you know, there's there's these absurdist moments, these moments of like playfulness. There's there's a, there is a real playful sense to this movie, um, for all its dark brooding qualities. Where again, as I said, like it, it feels like they're almost making it up as they go along. You know, the guide, the stalker, saying, "Oh, actually, this means that you're okay," and that's why it's letting you. It's like a kid responding to the environment, pretending that they are the one controlling it. And uh, so there's that aspect. And, and again, finding these 
places, these locations, these kind of vibes out there in the world and building a story around that um, or using a premise that existed, but, but kind of bending it to fit these places we see. And, and it's like a sense of kids running out into the yard and making up, you know, what this object is and what that one is and where we can go and where we can't. And, and even the fact that in the end, they don't go into the room. It's like, well, you can't really fulfill whatever the goal is because, you know, it's something you can't, <laughs> if, if you're playing a game of imagination, you can't actually go all the way with it. So, of course, you have to end on the uh, the cusp of it and, you know, back to the bar looking all be- bedraggled. And then the film ends, really begins and ends more on the daughter character, who I don't think ever speaks. They call her Monkey. She's referred to as a mutant. People kind of know that she has telekinetic power, but, um, you know, she's very frail physically. And so the film begins with her sleeping in bed and these uh, glasses are vibrating on the table and moving because the train's going by. And then in the end she moves these glasses, like lies her head down. It's this one incredible shot. I mean, there's many single takes in this film that last minutes and minutes on end where they find an angle to present the conversation or the experience and st- sit back and kind of take in the whole, you know, he, he almost makes like proscenium arch out of like the walls surrounding this doorway that the characters are standing in and talking, for example, near the room. And it just kind of leave them there. But in this last sequence, it's a close-up of the girl reading, slowly puts the book down, rests her head sideways, one by one, pushes the cups, one of them rolls off, and she's just sort of bored playing a game in the same way that, as I said, the adults in the movie almost see like, seem like uh, kids who are making up a game. But in her case, there's a real obvious uh, power there that she actually can move these objects with her mind that she is sort of in a way what her father pretends to be, I guess you could say. Um, And I was left with, you know, it's a very ambiguous, beautiful ending because you can't quite pin it down and say, Oh, this means that, or this, I love films that have these sort of endings where something happens. That's just a transcendent cinematic experience. And that in itself justifies itself versus where it necessarily fits in with the narrative. Um, That's not to say it doesn't leave you with impressions or thoughts or additional reflections. I think in this case, again, it was this idea of almost like the most powerful character in the movie, the one who maybe has the most potential to do something significant in the future is this daughter we barely see who's only in the beginning and the end. (laughs) In a weird way, it's almost like watching the origin story of um, somebody who's going to be larger than life. This final gesture really feels like a kind of a silent cry into the into the wilderness that nobody can hear. And I think, I, I, I kind of get the impression that Tarkovsky in some way connects the most with this character, this brilliant, precocious child with this incredible ability that nobody seems to recognize and or care about surrounded by people kind of flailing and uh, failing and not able to um, not, not just not able to realize some, some potential, but not actually even having that potential themselves being sort of mean and grubby and, and pathetic in various ways. 
and then you have this kind of flower blooming from this this concrete surrounding her and i i kind of suspect he sees a bit of himself in that especially at this time as this director struggling against this really uh, you know not not very favorable artistic environment in uh, the USSR at this time from certainly from his perception of it so uh, at this point I've seen most of his films I think the only one I haven't seen might be Nostalgia which was like his second to last it's interesting to me I, I know people do love Nostalgia they love The Sacrifice his last film which I have seen, but I've also heard a sense that like his best work was in the Soviet Union where he was struggling. And it, it speaks to something interesting in this movie and some of his others, this idea that even for someone as purely, you know, himself, uniquely creative in a way that only he could be, uh, Tarkovsky still kind of thrived with tensions and contradictions and paradoxes and and uh, kind of complementary um, divergences in his work, <laughs> in a way. And and this, I think, more than any other, as I've been talking about from the very beginning of this discussion, the fact that it can be so mystical and so literal that it can show us, you know, a visionary experience and also kind of dance around and suggest hey we can't really show you certain things like that's not even possible you know it knows its own limitations as well as its own potential depths the things that it can show you that it can explore that it can create it just has a mastery of what cinema is and isn't capable of and uses both of those to its advantage and ultimately to ours and that's it for this episode and for this uh, podcast feed I had really hoped to have a teaser out before this so that this could sit atop the feed, a teaser for Patreon episodes with like clips from uh, discussions that never got put out to the public. So I may still put that on the feed at some point, but um, I'm going to let this one sit up there probably for a little bit first. So uh, yeah, uh, this is a good note to go out on, I think. Uh, Thank you for listening. you can keep following my work on Twin Peaks, which will be going up for the public. Got major projects going up, and um, also film commentary, as I said, will continue on Patreon. Uh, you can uh, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Even though the podcast is over, that still helps people see it to find these uh, previous episodes. And of course, the archive of all my work is on lostinthemovies.com. Thank you for listening, and happy Halloween. Mm-hmm.